Well, let's begin. There was a little boy in Rome who asked his mother where he came from. His mother, pleased to have the opportunity to have such a discussion with her son, spoke of the family history and the history of Italy. She spoke as well of biology and theology, including God as the creator of all that is. After she had finished, her young son, looking somewhat bemused, said that he had asked the question about origins because his friend next door said he had come from Naples. As this anecdote reveals, and perhaps some of you are familiar with it, it's easy to be confused about different senses of origin. We can speak of origins not only with respect to our own lives and cultures, but more broadly in terms of cosmology, biology, philosophy, and theology. Yet, if we fail to keep distinct the different senses of origin and the different modes of analysis with respect to various disciplinary inquiries, our understanding is seriously compromised. Such failure is often evident in discussions about the origin of life on Earth or anywhere in the universe, for that matter. The question or questions about the origin of life require further clarification concerning what a living thing, precisely as living is, as well as what we mean or ought to mean by cause. The question of how life has come about is especially crucial if you think that there is a fundamental difference in kind between the living and the non-living. Yet even for those who accept various materialist, mechanist, and reductionist accounts of living and non-living entities, and thus deny any real qualitative distinction between the living and the non-living, even for them, the question of life's origin remains difficult. An excellent survey about this topic is you can find in the Oxford Handbook of the Philosophy of Biology. There's a wonderful essay on origins, uh, as, and the author makes a point of distinguishing between talking about the origin of life and talking about origins. Uh, and that's the Oxford Handbook of the Philosophy of Biology. The variety of scientific and philosophical views about how we understand life includes explaining life in terms of particular structures or organizations of material elements, or speaking of autopoiesis, life as a self-organizing reality. I should mention autopoiesis because that theory was made famous by two Chileans, uh, Umberto Mercerana and Francisco Varela. And I know whenever I'm in Chile, it's always important to mention uh, autopoiesis. Uh, or, some, or further, describing life as an emergent property in the material world, or of identifying life with information and the list of other possibilities uh, uh, would continue. An important point to note is that all the various claims about how to describe what life is are claims that often involve diverse philosophies of nature and involve as well diverse metaphysical assumptions. 
At times, those who make these claims are aware of their philosophical nature. More often, they are not. And despite a wide range of different scientific claims about the initial conditions, locations, and causal factors in the emergence of life, the general scientific consensus is that chemical processes are at the basis of the coming into existence of living things. As an example of this general search for the origin of life in terms of chemical process, I want to highlight a recent claim by one of many scientists, but a particular one, Adi Pross, Pross an Israeli scientist, uh, has claimed that, quote, life's emergence was initiated by some autocatalytic chemical system. This is going to be put uh, handout uh, text number one on, on your handout. The process giving rise to life in this general scenario is called, as we heard a moment ago, abiogenesis. And it is understood in terms of underlying physical chemical principles. Here's a brief schemata set forth in Prosser's book, What is Life? How Chemistry Becomes Biology. Now, the subtitle of the book, How Chemistry Becomes Biology, uh, captures the fundamental assumption of process, uh, of process position and the position of many others. Uh, where, we, uh, where you'll see on the little scheme here is from non-life to simple life to complex life. Huh? For Prost, and this continues now the text on your handout, dynamic kinetic stability is the underlying physical chemical principle that accounts for this continuous process. As he notes, once it is accepted that autocatalysis is a central element in the process of abiogenesis, it follows that the study of autocatalytic systems in general will lead to understanding that particular autocatalysis that resulted in living things. He concludes that life on Earth appears to have emerged through the spontaneous emergence of a simple, unidentified replicating system initially fragile, which complexified and evolved towards complex replicating systems, exhibiting greater dynamic kinetic stability. In fact, he says, I would claim that in the very broadest of terms, the physical chemical basis of abiogenesis can be considered explained. It is the chemistry of simple replicating systems, that is, systems chemistry, which is the key, according to Pross, for understanding life and its origins. Here we have a commitment to the continuity of natural processes from the inanimate world of chemistry to the world of living things. Such commitment to a fundamental continuity unbroken by any supernatural intervention is a characteristic feature of almost all of the contemporary scientific-based accounts of the origin of life. 
Although many biologists find Prosser's account too simplistic, as well as an unwarranted rejection of the autonomy of biology and its subject. Nevertheless, they all accept some sense of continuity between the non-living and the living, even though biologists, many biologists are uncomfortable, uh, intellectually uncomfortable, professionally uncomfortable with the reduction of biology to chemical systems. Discussions of the origin of life involve not only conceptions of what life is, but also differing notions of origin and of causality. If we begin with the assumption that there is no fundamental difference between non-living and living things, that the differences, however, are that the differences, however complex, are only matters of degree but not of kind, then the origin or origins of life so understood are to be found exclusively in the order of non-living things. But does a commitment to some kind of continuity in nature between the non-living and the living, does such a commitment require that we accept a notion of life that is exclusively materialistic? Such questions and others involve topics in the philosophy of nature, as well as metaphysics, concerning what life is and what it means to be a cause. We had a conference at Oxford a few years ago when I invited the famous molecular biologist from Chile, Rafael de Cunha, and I gave him as a topic, is what is, what is life, is that a biological question or not? And I, it's a question which is informed by biology, I would argue, but finally, it's a question in the philosophy of nature, not a question in the specialized biological sciences. So, well, initially, I want to examine an overarching context in which the debate about the origin of life is often discussed. It seems to many that either we seek to explain the origin of life in terms of purely natural processes, or we appeal to some kind of direct divine intervention that bridges the gap, as it were, between the non-living and the living. I emphasize here two words uh, <clears throat> that result in considerable confusion, purely in the phrase, a purely natural process or purely natural processes, and direct in the phrase, direct divine intervention in nature. There are some who think that if we are committed to a scientific analysis of the world, there must be, in principle, no question about what, what happens in the world that is not subject to analysis and resolution in terms of the categories of scientific explanation. Furthermore, scientific explanation must mean, so it seems, that there is no substitute to materialism but some kind of magic, for there is no philosophical position other than materialism that is compatible with the science of biology or any science for that matter. And of course, there are others, often believers, 
who think that living beings and ultimately human beings are the result of a kind of direct special creation by God. I think that this contrasting way of looking at the question of origins or of looking at any question about natural sciences and divine agency, that that way of looking at the question is fundamentally mistaken. My point is that as natural scientists seek to discover natural causes, including the causes of life, they need to keep in mind the wider philosophical and theological context in which these natural causes operate. Similarly, those who wish to appeal to divine agency in describing the advent of living beings should be able to recognize that such causal agency attributed to God does not exclude explanations in natural, purely natural terms. As I've already suggested, there are several senses of origins. Perhaps we can speak of an explanation of origins in terms of the natural sciences that also involves an explanation of origins in philosophical and theological terms. One well-known approach to deny the view that it is either God or nature that causes living things to come to be is to speak of God's creative act as the primary cause and causes in nature as secondary causes. This approach has a long history, stretching back at least to the Middle Ages, and also has many variations, often associated with different senses of what it means to be a cause. At times, these secondary causes were viewed only as instruments of the primary cause, the way, for example, the hammer in the hand of a carpenter is only an instrument in driving a nail into a wall. Sometimes in such an analysis, fundamental causal agency resides in God alone, the primary cause. Yet another view would see God's creating the natural order with its own laws and then leaving or allowing nature to develop on its own. Although attractive to many, it's easy to see how in such a scenario, God's role might disappear the more we think that nature itself is, a self, is self-sufficient, able, that is, in principle, to provide for all the changes without any further appeal to God. And here I want to talk now more specifically about the tradition of Thomas Aquinas, the various causal powers that exist in nature really are causal powers in themselves. They really are the origins of the changes that flow from them. Yet these causal powers that exist in nature, like everything else in nature, continually depend for their existence and efficacy upon God's creative act. God's causality extends not only to the existence of created beings, but also to their operations. Indeed, the very operations in which creatures engage are themselves actually existing realities and depend upon the ultimate source of all actuality, namely the creator. As Thomas says in a famous passage from the De Potentia Dei, and that's quotation two on your handout, as the theme Thomas returns to often. He writes, 
God causes all the actions of nature because he gave natural things the forces whereby they are able to act, not only as the generator gives power to heavy and light bodies, yet does not preserve it, the power, but also as upholding its very being. For as much as he is the cause of the power bestowed, not only like the generator in its becoming, but also in its being. And thus God may be said to be the cause of an action by both causing and upholding the natural power in its being. God is the cause of everything's action inasmuch as he gives everything the power to act and preserves it in being and applies it to action and inasmuch as by his power, every other power acts. And if we add to this, that God is his own power and that he is in all things, not as part of their essence, but as upholding them in their being, we shall conclude that he acts in every agent immediately without prejudice to the action of the will and of nature. And follow them. The next paragraph on your handout, and in the Summa Contra Gentiles, Thomas remarks, the same effect is not attributed to a natural cause and to divine power in such a way that it is partly done by God and partly by the natural agent. Rather, it is wholly done by both, according to a different way. It's not the case of partial or co-causes, with each contributing a separate element to produce the effect. God as creator is not a competing cause in the world. Now, often scientists speak of the self-organization of the first forms of life, and that accordingly their appearance through natural causes might eliminate the need to appeal to causes beyond natural causes. This emphasis upon the autonomy and self-sufficiency of the natural world is an important feature of many arguments that deny the need to appeal to God. Stuart Kaufman is a famous proponent of this view, as is apparent in the quotation at the beginning of the handout. But the defense of the competence of the natural sciences ought not to be equated with a denial of the necessity of divine agency in all natural processes, including whatever processes are involved in the origin of life. It's not a question of either or. It's not a question of either natural causes or divine causes. Whatever comes about in the world has God as cause, but this does not eliminate the role of causes in nature producing their proper effects. So if we were to discover that living things can emerge from natural causes, it does not mean that God is not the origin of living things. It means that causal potentialities in nature are robust enough that a living thing can be the result of processes that begin with non-living matter. To say, however, that there is no need 
for a supernatural cause to bridge the chasm between non-life and life does not mean that there's no need for divine causality in the process. God is the cause of nature itself. He is the cause in such a way that nature has its own integrity, its own self-organizing principles. In other words, not appealing to some special direct causal role by God in the transition from the inanimate to the animate does not eliminate God's role in that transition. God's causality is necessary for all natural causes to operate, whatever these natural causes are and however they operate. This is the larger context of understanding God's creative causality and the real integrity of causal processes in the natural order. God causes causes to be the causes which they are. And again, it's not partial, it's not partial causing. It's God is the complete cause and the natural cause is the complete cause or can be the complete cause. But the problem is not so simple. It's not so simple as recognizing this overarching context of how we understand God as creator. So the next section, inanimate causes of living things. So far, I've argued for the big picture about the origin of life, in particular, how in broad philosophical and theological principles, scientific explanation of the origin of life would not require a denial of a philosophical and theological appeal to a divine agent who acts in that process. The more difficult question is whether non-living things can, in fact, be the causes of living things. So even granted that God is the cause of all causes, is it intelligible that non-living causes can cause living things? Or to put it another way, given what a living thing is, can it be produced by the activity of non-living things? This is the more difficult question. This is not simply or even primarily a matter of observation and experimentation, but rather of philosophical reflection. And such reflection takes us back to what it means to be alive, and it requires us to advance further into the nature of causality. Initially here, I want to make a comment about causal explanations in the tradition of Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle. For both of them, the hallmark of causality is ontological dependence. As Thomas says, and I have a, this quotation on your handout under inanimate causes, those things upon which others depend for their being or becoming are called causes. Since this dependence takes various forms, causality is an analogous notion that has various senses. 
all four types of causes, material, formal, efficient, and final, involve dependence, but in different ways, but still dependence. The differences between non-living and living things is initially disclosed in distinct properties and activities, which in turn point to the kind of causality exercised by each. A difference that is rooted ultimately in different principles of actuality. So we can describe the, the properties of living things, but the, that's only the beginning of thinking about the kind of causality that's involved living things, and that itself requires further analysis into the kind of principles of actuality which distinguish living from non-living things. There are clearly certain essential properties that are characteristic of living things. For example, nutrition, growth, reproduction. Living things must possess a principle or source of these activities, a principle of actuality, what Thomas Aquinas, following Aristotle, called the substantial form, in case of living things, a soul. That is the principle by which the living thing is the one thing that it is. And of course, that's another important contribution of the philosophy of nature to, to this discussion of the origin of life, indeed to any discussion about life, or for that matter of any natural substance, how to understand the unity of things, how things are one. Huh? There is a further distinction that philosophical reflection, at least in the tradition of Thomas Aquinas, offers concerning the kind of causality that distinguishes living substances from non-living ones. So now we're moving beyond simply describing the properties and talking about uh, a distinction of kind of causality uh, manifested. This is a distinction between imminent and transient causes. All natural substances, both animate and inanimate, exhibit transient causality, the effects of which are extrinsic to the agent. For example, when one rock rolling down a hill hits and moves another rock, huh? transient causes produce effects that are extrinsic to the causes themselves. Huh? And another example would be uh, those causes that produce chemical compounds. Huh? Here is how Thomas expresses this distinction in Summa Contra Gentiles when he discusses the operations natural substances perform and which follow upon the actual possession of a certain kind of nature. And this is quotation number three on your handout. There are, Thomas writes, two sorts of operations as Aristotle teaches in Metaphysics 9. One that remains in the agent and is a perfection of it as the act of sensing, understanding, and willing. Another that passes over into an external thing and is a perfection of the thing made as a result of that operation, the act of healing, 
cutting, excuse me, the act of heating, here we go again, the act of heating, cutting and building, for example. This is a distinction in terms of final causality. The end or goal of an activity, an end or goal that is crucial for understanding a given action, including indeed its efficient causality as well. In what follows, I'm relying in important ways on the insights of two contemporary philosophers, David Oderberg and Edward Faser, who have written extensively on imminent causality as a way to distinguish the living from the non-living. In addition, in addition to transient causality, living things also exhibit an imminent causality. And the causal process is imminent when it originates within an agent and terminates within the agent in a way that tends toward the agent's own self-perfection or completion. Digestion is a good example of an imminent causal process. When a snake eats a mouse, digestion begins. And it ends when the nutrients from the mouse have been absorbed into the bloodstream of the snake. Note as well, the end or result of this causal process is that the snake is able to survive, grow, and reproduce. Part of the perfection of the snake. This imminent Causal process involves a contribution, as I said, to the completion or perfection of the snake. Such causality is necessarily teleological. It is directed toward an end or telos, the nourishment of the snake. Imminent causal processes like digestion point to or aim towards the realization of the ends or good of the one who is doing the digesting. Obviously, chemical and physical processes are involved in the imminent causality exercised by living things. But these processes, these chemical and physical processes, are ordered by the organism as a whole to the perfection of the organism. Here is the way David Oderberg summarizes this understanding of life in terms of imminent causality. And this is quotation number four on your handout. The essence of life, I claim, is what Aristotelians and Thomists sometimes call imminent causation. This is causation that originates with an agent and terminates in the, that agent for the sake of its self-perfection. It's a kind of teleology, but metaphysically distinctive in what it involves. Imminent causation is not just action for a purpose but for the agent's own purpose, where own purpose means not merely that the agent acts for a purpose it possesses, but, it, that, it, but that it acts for a purpose it possesses such that fulfillment of the purpose contributes to the agent's self-perfection. Hence, in imminent causation, 
the agent is both the cause and the effect of the action. And the cause itself is directed at the effect as perfective of the agent. In understanding what life is, we need all the evidence from biochemistry and molecular biology about the complex structures and material constituents of living things. We need as well an understanding of how a living thing is the one thing that it is. We must also recognize that the fuller notion of cause includes teleology includes final causality. This fuller notion of cause applies as well to inanimate natural substances, to chemical compounds and elements, for example. All natural substances, both animate and inanimate, have an intrinsic teleology. The, the phosphorus, and this is an example which Ed, Edward Faser likes to use, this is the phosphorus in the head of a match aims or points toward the outcome of generating a flame and heat. Despite phosphorus's activity having a teleological end-directed character, this is an example of transient causation because it does not involve anything like the perfection or completion of an agent, in this case the phosphorus, in the way, for example, that digestion involves the perfection or completion of the snake. The crucial difference here concerns the particular sort of end or telos that characterizes imminent causation. There is an end or telos that terminates within the causal agent itself, and this is the key to imminent causation and so of life itself. The emphasis upon life as understood in terms of imminent causality is a reflection in the philosophy of nature. To expand one's understanding of life to include a metaphysical dimension, especially in terms of an act of being, I should like to call your attention to an important article by Juan Eduardo Carreño in the Angelica. I thought it would be appropriate to mention the Angelicum here. The title of which, and this is number five on your handout, uh, From Self-Movement to Essay, The Notion of Life and Living Being in Thomas Aquinas. The title suggests the structure of his essay, From Self-Movement to Essay. And he summarizes his position in this way, quotation five. The living being possesses the essay in a more radical fashion than non-living beings, and because of this, it is a more perfect sort of substance. This intense, I like this next expression, this intensified substantiality in turn is manifested at the entitative level by a more radical fulfillment of transcendental perfections and at the operative level in imminent and spontaneous activity, the two notes that are prima facie evident to us. Now, I don't want to uh, go into the more elaborate metaphysical analysis here about uh, 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 understanding uh, 
uh, life in terms of a more intensified substantiality, but only to point out that we can go further here than, than uh, the natural philosophical discussion of life in terms of a, a characteristic kind of causal activity. What can we say about the causes of life conceived in the ways Oderberg, Faser, and others set forth? The causal activity of anything flows from the kind of thing that functions as a cause. As many of you are familiar, there's a famous medieval scholastic phrase that captures this truth. Action follows from being. Causal powers are capacities to perform or effect particular outcome, outcomes. These powers and properties flow from the essence or natures of nature of things. With respect to human beings, we can speak of the capacity for perceptual experience, the capacity for self-movement, to have self-awareness, the ability to form concepts, and so forth. Being a rational animal, or more abstractly, rational animality is not the cluster of these capacities and properties. Huh? Rather, the essence or nature of man is that by virtue of which a human being has these properties and capacities. The natural sciences help us to identify many, but not all, of the properties of different living things and to recognize differences among living things. It's the role of the philosophy of nature and then metaphysics to recognize that much more has to be said about what it means to be a living thing than simply a listing of its properties. To argue that a living thing is only the sum of certain properties and activities, or is nothing more than the structure and relationship among parts, or more naively to accept a mechanistic and materialistic account of life, all of this is to make philosophical claims and inadequate claims at that. The nature of causality is a philosophical question. But what specific causal powers things have, both living and non-living, is initially an empirical question. Any proposed emergence of living things from non-living things raises fundamental questions for a causal analysis. A cause or set of causes cannot produce an effect that is not in some way present in the cause or set of causes themselves. This is another philosophical principle that's central to any question about the origin of life, at least if we are speaking of origin in a way appropriate to reflections in the philosophy of nature. Just as I've suggested that we must be careful about different senses of origin, so too we must be aware of an understanding of cause that is, uh, that is more profound than is often the case in modern uses of the term. A causal agent must have an appropriate efficacy to produce an effect. Otherwise, it would not be a cause. So we can draw a preliminary conclusion from the principle about imminent causalities being the key to what it means to be alive, 
on the one hand, and the principle that whatever causes an effect must possess in some way the reality that is in the effect. The preliminary conclusion is that non-living substances, unless they possess in some way imminent causality, cannot by themselves be the causes of living substances. The transition from non-life to life requires that the causal power be an imminent cause in some way, since this is essential to what it means to be alive. The power to be an imminent cause must be present in the agent that is the cause, in the agent or agents that will cause the origin of life. We are now here at an even deeper philosophical question about the origin of life. First of all, we need to ask, what does it mean for a cause to possess in some way what is found in the effect? The question has its source in the recognition of what cause and effect are. The effect depends for its reality as an effect. Remember, ontological dependence. Huh? The effect depends upon, for its reality as an effect upon the cause as a source of that reality. A cause cannot give, as it were, what it does not possess. And as I said, we should remember that cause and effect are ultimately categories in metaphysics that reflect a dependence in the very being of the effect. For the effects to be in some way in the cause does not mean that it must be in the cause in the same way that it is in the effect. This is a distinction between being in the cause formally, the same way, and being in the cause virtually or eminently in some way, but not in the same way. Also, an effect in many cases is the result of a group of causes, but the same issues are present for a group of causes as for an individual cause. When an Olympic torch is used to light another torch, what is in the effect, fire, is in the original torch in the same way that it is in the effect. But when fire is caused by striking a match, the fire is in the match only in the sense that the match, given what it is, has an inherent power to generate fire. The potential to produce fire, not fire itself, is a real power in the match. It's a power that needs some agency to bring it into actuality, but it is a real feature of the match. And when a builder builds a house, the features of the house are not in the builder in the same way that they're in the house. Rather, an idea of the house to be built exists in the mind of the builder. Thus, we can say that if there is, or so it seems we can say, that if there is no imminent causality whatsoever, either formally or virtually, in non-living substances, or in some combination of them, then it is not possible for them to be the cause or causes of living substances. The origin of life, then, 
would have to be the effect of something completely other than an inanimate natural cause. Why would we reach this conclusion? Because whatever causes produce effects must have an appropriate efficacy to produce these effects. And this causing is the adducing from the potency of matter, the substantial form of the new, of the new substances. And if the effect is a living being, then the cause must possess in some way the power to be an imminent cause. This is exactly the philosophical conclusion of Oderberg and Faison. For them, imminent causation can never arise in any way from transient causation. That is, no amount of transient causation can ever, over time, give rise to imminent causation. Imminent causation is not simply a matter of greater complexity in the agent that exercises such causality. It is not, so to speak, transient causality plus something extra. Huh? If we grant that there really is a difference in kind between living substances and non-living substances, can we say that since living substances have appeared, it must be the case that somehow imminent causality was present in the world of non-living substances? Of course, there's another alternative to explain the appearance of living things, that there was, uh, 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 namely, that there was or is a supernatural agent possessing the kind of causal power that produces the initial appearance of living things. This explanation is always an option. But we're interested here in whether non-living things can really be the causes of living things. What about the argument that since God is the universal cause of all causal activity, such that God causes causes to be causes, could not God cause non-living substances to be the cause of living substances, since this is what it means for God to be creator? So I'm now returning to that more overarching thing. Furthermore, as we've seen, in this understanding of creation, natural causes, although created by God, have their own proper causal activity, both imminent and transient. It's important to recognize that the kind of causality God exercises is radically different from the causality in all of its diversity exercised by creatures from subatomic particles to human beings. That we would need God as universal cause in the origin of life would seem not to be so radical, since we need God as universal cause for there to be any kind of causality. But can God cause non-living things, which exercise only transient causality, to possess in some way the capacity to be imminent causes such that they can truly be the causes of living substances. That is, that they could educe the substantial form of living things from the potency of appropriately disposed matter. Well, 
if inanimate things like chemical elements were themselves to possess the power to cause living things to come into existence in some way, then it seems that they, these inanimate things, would not be inanimate, but rather living things themselves. God's causality is at work in all changes. And God obviously has the power to cause living things to come into existence. But God creates causes to be the kinds of causes that they are. If inanimate things by nature could cause living things to emerge, God would be creating that which was and that which was not what it is. If inanimate things in some way could cause living things to emerge because of what they are, then God, who is creating the inanimate things, would be creating that which was and that which was not what it is. So it seems to me that the initial emergence of life requires something more than natural causes functioning in the ordinary way according to which nature and God are the complete causes of what happens in the world. Thank you very much.